This is the Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, the Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Welcome, weekend political warriors. The usual excitement in the state capitol in Lansing this week. Uh, the usual impasse continues between Governor Gretchen Whitmer and the Republican-controlled legislature on the state budget for fiscal year 2020 and her 147 line-item vetoes and nearly a billion dollars in cuts from the state budget that the legislature sent her over a month ago. And also, big issue, her more than $600 million in budget transfers within departments, uh, which the legislature is very unhappy about. That continues, that story, uh, kind of a standoff, an impasse at this point. There's no resolution. We're going to talk about that later in the program with a couple of guests. I'll just mention a couple of other things. This week, a 10-bill package, which would expand legalized gaming or gambling in Michigan, came roaring out of the House after it was reported from committee just last week. It would expand gambling in Michigan to online gambling. It would include sports betting. And it would allow fantasy gambling. Uh, The governor is not on board with this legislation the way it stands right now. She is afraid that any expansion of gambling in Michigan will rob from the state lottery, which is earmarked the revenue from the lottery for the state school aid fund. She claims that the state school aid fund might possibly be damaged by siphoning off revenue that would ordinarily come to the state school aid fund from the lottery to this other form of gambling that might become much more popular. Now, the chairman of the committee that handled this legislation, he is State Representative Brant Iden from the Kalamazoo area. He and the committee worked very hard. They studied what's been going on in other states on this issue. They claim Brian Iden and his colleagues, both Republicans and Democrats on the committee, that it appears that in the other states, lottery revenue has not been damaged in those states and that, in fact, it's supplied a new source of revenue to the state from this expanded gambling, sports betting, fantasy gambling, online gambling. And everybody's been happy in those two states if you like expanded gambling. If you don't like expanded gambling, you're not going to be happy no matter what is going on. But uh, right now, the legislation passed the House, and it's been sent over to the Senate, and the Republicans all voted for it. Most Democrats in the House voted against it. I don't think because they really oppose the legislation. In fact, Virtually all the Democrats on the committee that handle this legislation supported it, except one. They're just standing up for their governor, 
who at this point has been resistant, and they say, what's the point of pushing ahead on this if it's not going to get the governor's signature? So we'll see what develops on that. Now, there's also some elections going on in Michigan, believe it or not, on Tuesday, this coming week, um, November 5th. And uh, there are a lot of bond issues on the ballot. There are some mayoral races. There are some city council races around the state. I think probably the biggest one is in the city of Flint, uh, where there is always a hotbed of excitement. And right now, uh, if we look at that race, you've got incumbent Flint Mayor Karen Weaver running for a second four-year term as mayor. Four years ago, she knocked off the incumbent, Dane Walling. She then survived a recall effort against her handily, but now she's being challenged by State Representative Sheldon Neely, who is going to have to leave the legislature at the end of the next year because of term limits. So he's running for mayor. He might anyway, uh, whether he was able to run for re-election or not. And according to a poll that came out last week, he has a slim 53 to 47 percent lead over Mayor Weaver. By the way, in a side question in this poll, 64 percent of the city's residents refused to drink the tap water more than two years after the state said the water was safe to drink. So those are the headlines from this particular poll, which was conducted by Practical Political Consulting of Lansing. That means Mark Grebner. And it was a robo-poll. You can say maybe that suspect uh, was a very light response rate. Uh, The poll supposedly has a plus or minus 5% margin of error. Um, And I must say, these polls in the past taken by Practical Political Consulting have been surprisingly accurate. Um, when we look at the mayoral race, uh, Representative Neely, the challenger, said he's not surprised by the results. He's pleased that voters are cutting through the, quote, misinformation the Weaver camp is pushing out there, unquote. Uh, according to Representative Neely, quote, first they blamed the water crisis on former Governor Rick Snyder. Then they blamed it on former Mayor Dane Walling. Then they blamed it on former city council member Scott Kincaid. And now it's my fault, said Neely. And continuing his quote, those arguments only go so far with the Flint community. The residents here are much smarter than this. They know I provide to the residents the ingredients to bring success to Flint, unquote. So uh, the second question, as I mentioned earlier, centered around If whether residents have concerns about drinking the city's tap water four years removed from the Flint water crisis, where many parts of the city were exposed to high levels of lead and water. Uh, In 2017, the Flint's municipal water supply fell within federally accepted standards for lead, leading state environmental officials to declare the water safe to drink, safe to cook and bathe in without filter. Uh, Those assurances apparently have percolated into the minds of residents, but maybe 
without their being accepted. <laughs> a total of nearly 60% of the respondents said they don't drink the water, but they shower with it. Another 4.6% said they don't use the water at all. A total of 20.7% said they drink the water, but they have concerns. And 15% said they drink the water without concern. That's about one out of every seven Flint residents say they drink the water without concern. According to a local citizen, one of the respondents in the poll, uh, Naira Sharif, she said, it doesn't surprise me. I don't drink my tap water. For one, I don't trust the state. Second, I feel like all of those testing numbers are made up. There are no safe levels for lead. According to Naira, and I'm quoting here, city residents were traumatized when lead-loaded water poisoned themselves, friends, and or neighbors. There's a lot more work that needs to be done to get residents to trust the water, even if some pipes have been replaced and the water source is different, unquote. Sharif said residents are still putting up with boiled water advisories from water main leaks. Until all the pipes are replaced and people's plumbing is fixed, she says it's hard for her to see many drinking the tap water. Uh, Candidate Neely concurred. He said, I'm trying to figure out the 35% who say they drink the water. He says, I don't know anybody who's drinking straight up tap water. Maybe they have a good filter, unquote. Well, that's it for Flint uh, in terms of What's going to happen going into Tuesday's election? We'll see what the results are, and I'm going to be back in a minute, so stay tuned. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We are back, and we have Representative Matt Hall. He is a Republican from Emmett Township. Now, Emmett Township, what does that mean? I think it's near Battle Creek. It's the 63rd House District, and I think Representative Hall represents the city of Marshall and city of Galesburg and, like, I think maybe 21 townships. Is that correct, Representative Matt Hall? It is, yes. And um, uh, Emmett Township's where uh, Firekeeper's Casino is, and uh Ah. Also, of course, we got uh, Schuler's and Marshall, so we got some great right, landmarks. Right, that's really interesting. Okay, we've got a very uh, interesting and complex issue, I think, and it's about emotional support animals. And there's legislation that was introduced. I guess you're the prime sponsor. Uh, yes. Uh, in the House, and and also I think it's been introduced in the Senate, and they had hearings on it in the House last week and the Senate this week. Uh, what's going on there? What is all this about? Well, I've heard uh, from a lot of people in my district in Kalamazoo and Calhoun counties that there's a lot of confusion about uh, these emotional support animals. And uh, under the law, there's there's not a real clear explanation of what they are. Um, uh, there is a very clear explanation what service dogs are. Um, you know, they're, they're dogs or, or other types of animals, perhaps, that are trained. They receive training to help someone with a disability. Um, there is a clear definition what these therapy dogs are, which are dogs that receive a lot of training that would then go and counsel groups after something very traumatic happens. Uh, but these emotional support animals are 
essentially pet uh, that must that appear to provide some uh, comfort to someone with a disability. So, because this was not defined under the law, it's created a lot of confusion, and um, as a result, uh, people are trying to abuse this and get around uh, their housing laws uh, or, or rules by their landowner land, landlords. Um, and basically, they just go online with an out-of-state doctor uh, or, or licensed professional counselor, get a, get a note on the Internet, and, um, and then come and say, hey, I need an emotional support animal. And that could create litigation. It confuses the rights of the property owner, of uh, the, the tenant, and it just seems like the Wild West. So uh, there's, there appears to be a need to... Uh, clear this up so we can protect everyone's rights. So this seems to me more of a landlord-tenant issue, really, than anything else, right? I mean, in other words, people who are tenants could all of a sudden bring in a dog for what looks like to be a pet, and then the landlord comes and says, hey, you know, pets aren't allowed here. And so the tenant produces this document that he or she has gotten online saying, well, no, I, this is certifiable emotional support animal. I have to have that for my health. And so you've got to let me stay here. There's got to be an exception uh, to no pets on the premises. Isn't that kind of what's going on? Yes. And, and it's not just apartments. It could be a condominium association. It could be a nursing home. It could be a group home of some kind. Uh, my legislation addresses all those instances. But uh, you're correct. And, and, you know, what we found out in committee is the most common type of emotional support animal is a pit bull. And the reason for that is um, most apartment complexes don't allow pit bulls, even those that have um, other dogs. So in those cases, these people are going online and they're getting these certificates uh, and presenting them. And in committee, uh, someone testified who had gone through this process. This person gave a fake name, uh, indicated that she was born two years ago and got one of these uh, because her reason was uh, her landlord would not let her have a pet. And so it showed um, at no point did the person documenting this on the other side uh, ask for any proof of identification or seriously vet the reason. And so that just shows um, how easy it is to get one of these. And that abuses, um, you know, that sort of system, uh, that, that, that hurts people who do have a legitimate need. Because under the law, um, if, you, if you have a disability and this helps you with a disability, under federal housing law, they do have to allow it. But um, these people do not have that. So in these cases, they're abusing it. And, and that harms everyone. Yeah, so the real issue is separating the legitimate need for an emotional support animal by certain people who should be allowed to have them from people who are, quite frankly, phonies, and they just want a dog or they want some animal for emotional support, they claim, and they're using this as an excuse, and it's very easy for them to get around uh, the law, right? That's right, and and so that's why uh, my bill and also uh, Representative Sarah Cambenzi, who's a Democrat from Marquette, we're, we're working together in a bipartisan manner. Um, our bills would create rules on how to qualify for an emotional support animal. So you would need to um, get a note from a doctor uh, or other health care provider with a physical presence in Michigan who can articulate what your disability is 
and how this emotional support animal helps you treat that disability. If you can do that, then you will be able to have an emotional support animal in your housing uh, where, where it's otherwise uh, prohibited. Um, if you cannot do that, uh, then you're probably one of these people who's committing uh, fraud, and you should not be allowed to have one. It sounds like it's cutting out the online obtaining of these documents, supporting uh, the need by somebody to have an emotional support animal. I mean, you'd have to be physically present to go to a doctor or somebody else uh, to get this proof that you need it in order to be able to viably tell the landlord, hey, look, this is legitimate. I really have to have this. Yes. Um, that, that's right. And, you know, I heard this legislation has been out there for a few weeks before we got our hearing. And so I started hearing from a lot of people. And I heard from people who train, uh, you know, service dogs, uh, which are not included in this legislation. But I've also heard from people who have legitimate emotional support animals. And they feel that uh, this abuse, this widespread abuse um, of people misrepresenting emotional support animals is making their legitimate need and their work uh, cheapened. And, you know, they're subject to ridicule. People make fun of them. And they really want to see this type of reform because it separates the, the fraud and the bad actors from those who have a legitimate need and receive um, benefits from from this uh, from this type of animal. Yeah, that's understandable. Now, from the other side, there were some objections to this legislation on the grounds that it's too tough. Uh, it's, you know, I don't know what, mean-spirited? Uh, it, it goes too far? I mean, what, what are the arguments being made by people saying, hey, the current system is working fine, why mess with it? If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Well, the, the first thing I heard, which, is, which I think is fair, is, you know, how does this intersect with health privacy laws, and particularly uh, the HIPAA law? And so we're working with the attorneys uh, to do a little more research into that. And, you know, if there's a small amendment that needs to be made to clarify how those two laws fit together, I, I, I'm happy to do that because that's not the goal, uh, you know, to violate health privacy. The goal is to protect, you know, those who have a legitimate need for an emotional support animal. Uh, the, the second one we've heard is, yeah, just basically people who have a legitimate need for emotional support animals will not apply uh, because of, you know, some kind of embarrassment or this is too rigorous of a process. I mean, they're being treated by a doctor anyway. I mean, they have a legitimate need. Right. Well, boy. I can see how it's complicated, and I think there's more than one bill. As you say, Representative Kambenzi has one, and over in the Senate, they got legislation. So we'll see what happens as time goes on, but you've given a very good explanation of this legislation involving emotional support animals. Thank you so much, Representative Matt Hall, Republican of the 63rd House District, for being our guest. Thank you. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We have returned with another guest, a really insightful guest on a very important topic. He is State Representative Greg Van Workum of the 91st State House District. He is a Republican from Norton Shores, which is suburban Muskegon. And I believe the 91st District includes not just Norton Shores, but like Whitehall and Montague. You got four cities in your district and 10 townships. Is that correct? Representative Van Workham. 
We have the beautiful lakeshore in the 91st. Yep, it's uh, uh, Whitehall, Montague. We go all the way out to Casnovia and Fruitport. I'd be remiss if I didn't name them all, but I don't know if we have all that time. So, but they're all great places in the 91st. It is God's country over there, no question. And you are the son of former state rep and former state senator Greg, uh, excuse me, Jerry Van Workham. Is that correct? That's on my birth certificate, yep. Uh, my dad served or was first elected in 98, uh, served two terms, and then went to the Senate and served two terms as well. Wow. I remember his first election to the House. I think that was the most expensive House race in the history of the state up to that time. Now, it's maybe been surpassed, but that was... I believe it's been surpassed, but yeah, we uh, we broke a record. <laughs> well, look, you have introduced... Um, I think a you know very interesting and uh, important bill, and that is um, to require the Michigan legislature to pass a budget, not just present a budget, but actually pass a budget and send it to the governor by July 1st of each year, not October 1st, the way it is right now. And you have said that this is a good government reform that will offer more certainty for schools and local governments and other critical programs that rely on state funding to operate. Uh, can you explain, uh, you know, what's going on here and why is this necessary? Sure. I think um, this budget cycle highlighted this more than any other budget cycle. And to give your uh, listeners a little bit more background on me, uh, I once worked as a staff member, for, actually for 16 years, for two different congressmen. So I know the federal side and I know how broken that system is in trying to govern by um, supplemental bills, uh, CRs, and omnibuses, and it just, it's not good government, as, as you mentioned before. So as we saw the highlight from uh, this budget cycle at the state level, and one, uh, the governor uh, proposed uh, her budget, since it was her first, had 30 extra days, so that truncated a bit of uh, the time that, that we had to uh prepare the budget. Um, but then with um, the leaving of the table and stuff like that, it's just left a lot of families, a lot of veterans, a lot of counties, you name it, run the gamut of people that have now been impacted um, because of the administrative board transfers, because of the line items. So this bill would, um, just like the governor needs to present a budget uh, to us by a certain timeline, we would have to present a budget to her by uh, that July 1st date. And then we would have that July 1st through October 1st to, to negotiate maybe some of those finer points. But this would give uh, particularly schools uh, that start uh, their budget process on that July 1st a little bit better understanding of what their budget's going to be for the year. Yeah, um, you bring up a very good point, and you know the old saying, the governor proposes, the legislature disposes. I mean, the governor can come out with her recommended budget uh, in February or March, whenever it is, but, you know, if the legislature wanted to, it could just completely disregard her budget, and they could come up with their own budget, uh, whatever the deadline for submitting it to the governor is. Now, that isn't the way it works, practically speaking. You know that. Uh, the legislature usually starts with the governor's budget as a premise, and then you uh, have hearings, and you take testimony, and you study things, and you make some adjustments and changes. You know, uh, 
representative, let me tell you, I go back so far that I remember when, believe it or not, the fiscal year did start on July 1st. Uh, when I was in the legislature, it started on July 1st. And it was only when the state got in financial trouble in the mid-1970s that Governor Milliken and his budget director, Jerry Miller, who was known around the Capitol as Dr. Strange Tax, uh, decided, you know what, we're going to, on a one-time basis, extend the fiscal year start from July 1st to October 1st. And ever since then, the fiscal year has started on October 1st. Well, that means you're into the school year, obviously a different calendar than the legislature operates by. And so, you know, in some cases, the legislature and the governor, particularly if you've got divided government, let's say a Democratic governor and a Republican legislature, uh, lit and they fight all the way up to October 1st. And sometimes they tip over the edge. And back in 2007 and 2009, that's exactly what happened. There was actually, you know, on paper, at least a government shutdown for a few hours because they didn't get the budget enacted. And then, of course, this year you got a budget enacted, but with 147 line items by the governor and um, all this money cut out of the budget. And we've got this messy situation we're in right now. So you, in a sense, are saying, let's go back to the good old days when we got our budgets passed by July 1st. We had to. And by the way, that happened for eight straight years under Governor Snyder. Uh, And it's only now that you've got divided government again that this has happened. Uh, You know, let me just ask you this question. Why couldn't the legislature have sent her the budget back in June before July 1st anyway? And let her do what she wanted to do, uh, even though she had threatened not to accept anything unless it included uh, the equivalent of $2.5 billion for fix the damn roads. And maybe that's the reason you decided, well, why even bother to send her anything before July 1st if she's just going to veto it? Because we're not going to enact a 45 cent per gallon increase in the gasoline tax. Why couldn't you have done that? And uh, if she wanted to exercise her line item vetoes and her budget transfers, as you point out, she would have three months to negotiate with you before the start of the fiscal year on October 1st. Sure. Um, very lengthy question, but uh, I think you got to a lot of those those points is that we, we began that process right after the governor uh, introduced her budget. But the issue was, as you pointed out, there was this $2.5 billion more in her budget that was completely reliant on a $0.45 cent, uh, per gallon gas tax. Um, you know, as, as you know, as a representative, you go back to your district and you listen into folks and trying to determine what uh, uh, the, 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 the pulse is in your district. And I think it was pretty much across the state. No one had uh, any regard for that $0.45 cent gas tax increase. That base a budget, and when our budget is about uh, $26 billion for just the, the state side, that's not including the federal dollars that we get in, that's about 10% increase right there of, of the state budget. Um, as fiscal conservatives, uh, we did not want to see that. Uh, you did not see any uh, Democrat members, people from her own party, introducing uh, legislation to do that. So to stall um, that, 
um, and then have it go through the summer where the governor was meeting with uh, Senate Majority Leader Shirky and the Speaker to try and negotiate some of these things, it prolonged that process. And then, uh, as you know, back in, uh, I think, early September, she said she was going to be the adult in the room and drop uh, those negotiations and negotiate a budget, but then uh, decide to walk away from those uh, budget negotiations, uh, which left us to passing the budget uh, just prior to that uh, October 1st deadline. And again, this is trying or an attempt to put that um, put that deadline by July 1st so we can get that structure in place and that if there are line item vetoes and stuff like that, we've got another three months to, to negotiate that. As yeah. you've said, um, very much the schools are planning their budget by that July 1st, but actually today... November 1st is when those dollars, uh, whether they're additional or lower in the case of the charter schools, um, actually see that impact. Yeah, well, listen, we we could keep uh, talking about Yeah, we're out of time. Uh, I think if the governor had just announced in June, uh, I'm giving up on fix the damn roads money, let's do the budget now, you probably wouldn't be in this situation. Listen, Representative Greg Van Workham, thank you so much for being our guest and given a good explanation. I hope your legislation passes, but I'm apprehensive. All right. Thank you, Bill. (laughs) This is MTN, and you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. We have returned, and we have another guest, State Representative Ben Frederick, Republican of Owasso. He represents the 85th House district and that includes the entirety of Shiawassee County plus I believe 10 townships in Saginaw County is that correct representative Ben Frederick good to be talking to you again Bill hey great great to have you on uh, now as I understand it you and House Appropriations Chair Shane Hernandez uh, have offered a pair of what you call common sense solutions to Michigan's ongoing budget standoff, preserving some state administrative board powers while preventing gubernatorial abuse of the system. Can you explain what your legislation does and what its prospects are for passage? Yeah, my particular bill would uh, kind of recapture the original, what I think the original spirit of the administrative transfer board was, which is not a policymaking board or a reappropriation board. It's it's meant to provide the governor with discretion for um, unforeseen costs or personnel challenges within uh, a budget year, and make you know prudent adjustments to different lines based upon that need. And so, what it does is it actually restores the system that was in place uh, under Governor Milliken in the late '70s, early '80s, which would allow that discretion to the executive, but not allow for wholesale reappropriation or moving things and you know, completely eliminating programs the legislature has put forward. So there'd be a cap on the amount that could be transferred of no more than $200,000 per uh, per uh, appropriation. Yeah. When you mentioned uh, what Governor Milliken did with the legislature back in the 70s and 80s, um, was that just an understanding between Governor Milliken and the legislature at that time on how to use the budget transfer power through the administrative board, or was it actually uh, some kind of statutory provision? 
It was a state law change, actually, that went into effect in 76. It, it, it was the state of affairs and state law through the early 80s, and then the Management and Budget Act passed, which very strictly delineated the board's power in all but this one instance of this transfers within departments. And looking at the law, as um, uh, eventually was challenged in the court, the argument was made, uh, I think, uh, wrongly, uh, sadly, unsuccessfully, excuse me, uh, that this uh, uh, this clause that pretty much allows carte blanche uh, to the executive as long as the money stays in a particular budget was uh, still in effect, even though everything else that was done in 84 was actually restricting the board to be a truly administrative board. And what we saw recently in this $600 plus million dollars in transfer, wholesale changes in programs, wholesale elimination of certain uh, things that really affected vulnerable populations, and it was far more about policy making, I believe, and uh, true reappropriation than anything one could argue would be administrative. Yeah, interestingly, uh, the governor and Democrats in the legislature, at least some of them, have said, "Well, you know what, uh, Governor Engler did this back in 1991. Um, he." used the administrative board to make some transfers within departments. He pulled a lot of what he did back uh, and negotiated with Democrats who controlled the legislature at that time, or the House anyway. Um, But the Democrats in the legislature challenged what Governor Engler had tried to do in court, and it was a very close decision in the Supreme Court. You probably know it was four to three. And as you point yeah. out, they may have blown the call. You know, maybe maybe they got it wrong. I mean, is there any prospect that, you know, somebody at this point, you got a reverse situation with a Democratic governor and a Republican legislature could go back to the courts and say, wait a second here. You know, there are unintended consequences uh, of what, you know, your court yeah. decision did. What? No, it's a great question, because I, when you look at the court decision, it was all focused on whether this, this again, incongruent clause about intra-departmental transfers was still in effect. Nothing was really talked about as far as the constitutional appropriateness of the transfers themselves. And I would argue that if you take this thought process that the Whitman administration has started us on down this road on to its natural conclusion, you've made these appropriations process irrelevant outside of top-line numbers for each department. And I can't see how that would meet constitutional muster when it's clearly the legislature's authority on appropriation. Well, you'd... So I think there, the short answer is I think there are some things that could be litigated there that's a longer-term prospect. My hope in this legislation is to offer a path for immediate action. The governor, in effect, dropped an atom bomb on the process by the sheer scope of what was done in these transfers. And this would be a step toward reestablishing trust or some uh, voluntary disarmament, if you will. Yeah, I think you make a very good point. Unfortunately, the governor has really dug in her heels and basically doubled down on what she's done, saying, I'm not going to accept any change to my ability to exercise this executive branch power. Uh, So do you think with that kind of attitude from the governor, there's a chance that if you got your bills through the legislature and presented them to her that she would sign them. Well, I think it would definitely be tied to the, the top-level negotiations, of which I'm not a part. But there, I mean, there's been there's been uh, you know rhetoric um, back and forth. But I think there's a practical reality that we have many vulnerable populations, particularly in the transfers, a concentration on 
services affecting children, like foster care, adoption, criminal, you know, criminal sexually abused uh, children, human trafficking survivors. There's so much that's been egregious in this situation that, uh, rightly so, you see lawmakers saying, why would I appropriate another dollar without, you know, something beyond just a, a verbal guarantee that it's going to actually go for the things to which we've assigned it? Keep in mind as well, the budget, even though the governor walked away from the process, the budget still reflected an agreement between legislative Democrats and Republicans in the House, and it, it was granted immediate effect in the Senate, which required Democratic support. So there were Democratic priorities affected in this. So as a, I'm not even on appropriation, but as a member of the legislature, every member of the legislature, Republican or Democrat, and the people of Michigan should be very concerned about the, the uh, uh, precedent that's being established here. It's yeah. a fundamental shift in the separation of powers. Yeah, Representative Ben Frederick, um, at the time that the governor exercised her vetoes and her administrative transfers through the ad board uh, within department budgets, there was talk about overriding vetoes. Now, maybe you can't do much about the transfers by overriding, but isn't the clock running on an override? What's going on there? Has that been dropped by the legislature as a prospect? Uh, you could just put put certain things up on the board and and uh, see if the, the votes might be there. You got bipartisan support from a lot of Democrats for part of the budget that she exercised line item vetoes in. I agree. I, I think that these are these are top level negotiations. So I can't speak to the likelihood, but there there are so many paths available to bring this forward. You combine the transfer situation with the 147 line item vetoes, which cut across demographic political lines. It was hard to see the sense of the strategy and what was being done. And I know um, they may not be outspoken about it, but there are, I think there are several Democratic lawmakers that are also concerned and also upset about the situation. There's certainly uh, residents of Michigan that cut across political lines. These paths are available to us. I, I see the restraint on pulling some of those levers on the part of leadership as hopeful and that they're still trying to come to an equitable solution. Um, but as you say, the clock is ticking. Well, when does the clock run down? I mean, you don't have unlimited amount of time during which you could try to override the vetoes, right? What is it, 45 days? I'm not certain on the on the timelines specifically. I mean, I know some of these issues, like the transfer, uh, the, the grants for tuition grants, those had an immediate effect on the students. I mean, the governor had said that she did these vetoes to get the legislators back to the table on the tax increase question. But some of those things, even if the, if the if that had happened the day after, parents were still making decisions on whether their children were going to stay in college the next day because thousands of dollars are affected. So there, there's, a, there's kind of a rolling basis. Uh, you know, there's, off, there's obviously the question of supplemental as well beyond, you know, doing the veto overrides. But I, I don't have a specific answer on all the, all the process timelines. Right. Well, what about your bills? Uh, are they going to be subject to hearings coming up? Uh, are you going to try and move on this quickly in tandem with whatever is being negotiated between the leaders and the governor? I would love to. It's been sent to the Government Operations Committee, which, as you know, has a kind of a implication there that it's available uh, on a more timely basis for consideration. But as a member and a former staffer who, you know, been around this process for about 17 years, this, to me, is a far, far-reaching issue to, to correct. And I think it, it, putting a reasonable limitation on, on uh, 
the amount that can be transferred is absolutely essential for any future budget negotiations, regardless of who's in power. Right. Listen, we could talk about this forever, and uh, unfortunately, this may drag on the debate between the governor and the legislative leaders forever. Uh, Hopefully not, but uh, it's looking more and more that way. And I want to thank Representative Ben Frederick of the 85th House District for giving us a very lucid explanation of what he's trying to accomplish. Let's see if that leads to a solution. Thank you, Representative Ben Frederick. Always a pleasure, Bill. Thank you. That's it for this week.